And welcome once again to Father Spitzer's universe at the intersection where faith and reason collide, sometimes along with meeting. I'm Doug Keck here at the toll booth, and I decide who comes in and who goes out, but you're all invited this week. Email your questions to us at spitzersuniverse at ew10.com. Check out all of Father Spitzer's websites, themagiscenter.com, purposefuluniverse.com, and a new one, spitzercenter.org. Org. So that's a new one. Check that out. Father Spitzer's Universe is always available on our EW10 YouTube channel and our EW10 On Demand page, as is many of our other programs. New shows are always being added, so check it out on a regular basis. This is an important one. Check out American Mystic, the Rhoda Wise story. Beautifully done, noted for her spiritual gifts and healing miracles, Rhoda is best known for her impact on just a little lady by the name of Rita Rizzo who just happened to become Mother Angelica, who is the reason we're sitting here doing this program. And that's American Mystic, always free, and it's available on our on-demand page. So check that out. Our topic today is going to be on the Holy Eucharist, as we talk about that from Father's book, Escape from Evil's Darkness, which is, of course, available through EW10's catalog and has been uh, all along. Our book of the month from EW10 Publishing, a primer on the fundamental moral theology, by our radio host, Father Brian Milady. And of course, we turn once again to Father Spitzer, hopefully feeling better this week than last week. Thank you, great to see you, Father. Oh, well, uh, great to see you too, Doug, thanks so much. We want to kick the things name off of the Father prayer. and of the Son, you bet. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your many blessings to us, the blessing especially of this ministry and our ability to serve in it. We ask you to send your Holy Spirit down upon us now, Doug, myself, our staff, and our whole audience, so that everything we do and say will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. We ask all of these things through Jesus, our Lord. Amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Very good. Good to see you again, Father. Let's get started with a... Great to be with you, too, Doug. Uh, oh, you bet. A couple of topics, uh, kind of interesting. We've talked about the U.K. recently having to do with kind of gender-affirming and, and some of their steps to kind of deal with that in actually a positive way. But here's a slightly negative story out of there. A uh, Catholic chaplain and former professor of neurosciences is taking legal action against the NHS, the National Health Service Trust, after he was ousted for answering a patient's questions about the church's teaching on marriage. In a letter written in response to the patient's subsequent complaint, the acting chief executive of South West London and St. George Mental Hospital, uh, Mental Health NHS Trust uh, person said that trust policy on equality and diversity takes precedence over religious belief. So it's always good to know that. Uh, it goes on to say with the, the priest, Father uh, Policino commented, I am determined to seek justice in this case as how I was treated was unacceptable to see the black and white that my Christian beliefs in marriage uh, that have been taught for thousands of years are not on a par with equality and diversity. Shocking. And it goes on to explain in the story that a young gentleman asked him uh, as the chaplain there, you know, what about, you know, same-sex marriage? And he told him, well, uh -huh. and he asked him, what do you, does the Catholic Church think about this? And he explained, well, you're, it's, it's not something you should really be doing. And he complained yeah. about the fact that he gave him an honest answer, basically. 
Yeah, well, I mean, that's uh, kind of the, the prejudice you face. But if somebody asks for, you know, the position on what the Catholic Church teaches or what I personally hold, I would give the same answer as that good priest. And I hope he is very successful in his litigation against uh, the British government because, of course, once again, we see that it is overactive, overaggressive in its prosecutorial aims. And uh, let's hope that... Uh, that uh, he is victorious because I, you know, in Great Britain, I think you're, you're going to see the same openness uh, to being able to express the truth mm -hmm. and answer a question, um, you know, truthfully. Uh, you can't sit there and lie uh, in order to avoid a lawsuit uh, or, you know, from the government mm -hmm. every time you do something. So right. um, I think, uh, you know, he has a right to tell the truth. He did tell the truth, right. and that's great. Right, and, and in the past, at least, it was understood to say, well, somebody's stating a Catholic position. The government may not be in agreement with that, but it, that is, in fact, their their belief, so they should have the right to say it. Now, it's yeah. that's no longer acceptable, creeping, yeah. you know, this creeping control out there, this oh, creeping yeah. groupthink. Oh, yeah, absolutely, and uh, it's been coming around for a few uh, years, and uh, I, I think, uh, frankly, the British government, it's equality and and gender-affirming uh, part of it has to uh, get in contact with its National Health Service right. so they can uh, actually see right. what's going on uh, on the other direction that uh, they put an end to gender-affirming right. therapy there in Britain. Right. Well, it's yeah. interesting because we always talk about, and you always talk about studies. and st What studies are there that proves the DEI is good for anybody, let alone any particular group? And also, is it seems like these are the new sacraments for our the new New Age state religion that's out there. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, uh, I totally agree with you. I don't know of any studies that say that. Uh, I think, um, um, you know, that if you push it too much and you start encumbering and even, you know, sometimes... Uh, cutting off the freedoms of individuals who are just expressing like this priest was the truth about what he believed and what the church said right. when he was asked for that uh, I think um, you know at that point uh, you know it's just gotten to be uh, it should be D-I-E rather than D-E-I right. exactly. so uh, yeah exactly right. absolutely another story out there I know we talked last week a little bit about somebody had asked about married priests uh, coming out of the discussion uh, that was oh, coming yeah. that, mm -hmm. a little bit out of Rome and also out of Germany. But here's a, a study that came out that said that for the first time since 1999, the number of major seminarians worldwide has fallen below 110,000, according to statistics that were released by the Vatican. This is about a week or so ago, maybe two weeks now. Between the end of 2020 and the end of 2021, the number of seminarians worldwide declined from 111,855 to 109,895. Uh, and Africa is the only continent who has seen an increase in seminarians. Decline has been especially pronounced since 2019. Number of seminarians decline is most pronounced, and guess where? Let's take a guess North America and Europe. Uh, yep. Meanwhile, the number yep. of Catholics actually continues to increase by 1.3% uh, from. 1.36 billion to 1.378 billion. One other part before I wanted to get your reaction. A recent study found, you know, they talked about Africa, and so somebody talked about Nigeria, 
and asked a, a young cardinal there about it because a recent study said that 94% of Nigeria's 30 million Catholics say they attend Mass at least weekly or more, while only 17% of American Catholics attend Mass weekly. Um, and the cardinal said he believes yeah. Nigeria's traditional worldview, that's one, the role of the family, and yeah. the sense of the community within the parishes that kept Nigerians close to the sacraments generation after generation. So maybe we should spend more time looking at what they're doing in Africa and less time worrying about what they're doing in Germany. Well, uh, uh, there's uh, some uh, some truth to that, all right. But uh, uh, the the German uh, uh, bishops and uh, the the synod there certainly doesn't have any kind of a marker on emotional health or um, spiritual health uh, or, for that matter, relational or marital health. I mean, I think they're going in exactly the opposite direction. I think the Nigerians are correct. I think the key is the family, but the family that is backed up with uh, real faith. I go back to those Thornton studies a while back that I uh, cited uh, that shows the reciprocity between uh, religious belief and prayer on the one hand and religion on the other. So that, you know, if you, I mean, and uh, marriage on the other. So if you have a very strong marriage, it uh, generally tends toward strengthening of religious commitment within the marriage. And if you have strong religion, um, you know, uh, in the marriage, it will definitely strengthen the marriage. So it's a reciprocal uh, kind of effect. The strong religion strengthening the marriage, these studies show, uh, you know, very clearly that um, when um, there is a strong religious commitment in, uh, in, by both parties in the family and they're actually going to church um, and um, uh, also praying at night and so forth, these things make for high levels of marital satisfaction, high levels of security for the children within the family, high levels of performance, and then later when the children leave the family, uh, they are productive and good citizens within the culture. Religion does an enormous good for not just marital satisfaction, but divorce rates plummet in accordance with the strength of religion within the marriage. Now, this is done by like seven major university studies. It's not just Thornton's uh, studies uh, that say this. The other thing that um, is very clear, too, is that when you have that kind of a strong marriage, it naturally reinforces the religious commitment, the religious commitment gets higher, self-sacrifice gets higher. So it's a really, you know, the, remember, uh, uh, what was it, uh, uh, Father uh, Peyton, I think, uh, the, the, the family that prays together stays together. Right. Nothing could be truer according to all these studies. Yeah, some people say also the family that in a modern way eats together uh, helps to keep things together as well because that's another thing where that's been lost in our society, the kind of a, the family table. Yeah, no, that, yeah, I think that's yeah. very true, too. I mean, all these kids have after-school sports. They've got all these kinds of things going on, and or they just want to go out of the house. they got the car, and they're mobile, and they don't talk together. They don't share the deeper uh, dimensions of their being together, and emotional intimacy is a huge deal. 
I mean, you know, you don't, well, you say, well, I, I had a conversation, but I didn't get that much from the conversation. I could have gone out and gotten a better conversation with my uh, friend out there, you know, um, uh, rather than uh, what I talked about at the dinner table with my family. But the emotional intimacy that is present at that dinner table, that sense not only of security, but that sense of common values, that sense of that love uh, and support that's there in the dinner table actually shapes the security, shapes the religious commitment, and shapes the values, and shapes the sense of hope and ongoing direction. These kinds of kids who eat together, you know, the suicidal rates, uh, et cetera, just don't pertain to them. Mm -hmm. You know, this is not what they're thinking about 24-7, unless one of them, of course, is psychologically unstable. So the, uh, you know, the, it's really amazing right. uh, what a good dinner conversation will do, but religion, even more than the dinner right. conversation, and the bonding at dinner is the key element to the stability right. of kids going forward. And the key factor for instability of kids going forward is divorce with a capital D. Right, that's why they talk about feral children these days in a sense, the way things yeah. are going. So, and we see it acted out many times when people yeah. uh, show up, whether in, at a conference or someplace recently, a, uh, a federal judge was shouted down at Stanford University because he misgendered some uh, guy who was a pedophile yeah. uh, who claimed to be a woman and that caused a major brouhaha but it's not only that these people disagree it's the, the lack of total disrespect and any sort of decorum for anyone you disagree with oh yeah yeah it just you know shows that uh, you know some of our major universities are becoming a free-for-all mm -hmm. you know and that, that uh, they excuse the lack of manners conduct decorum uh, which you know any civilized uh, um, society has, and um, I guess we're uncivility is the name of the game these days. Right. And exactly. So um, you know, yeah. And there's another story what here. I wanted, to, I wanted to change subjects, but uh, since your your interest in these kinds of medical related, uh, you know, ethical things, increasingly, this is from the Capital yeah. World Report. Uh, Increasingly uh, permissive and unethical standard for organ harvesting, at least that's the concern of the person writing this particular article. Uh, uh -huh. The person's point is that organ transplants performed in 2022, the majority, 85%, were on quote-unquote dead donors. But they said these dead donors are not the cadavers we associate in our minds with death. Cadavers cannot be a source of fresh, viable organs. New definitions of death have been created to provide legal justification for organ harvesting f from patients who in the past would have been considered to actually be alive. And they talk about something which I'll probably mispronounce called normothermic regional perfusion uh, with controlled yeah. donation after circulatory death. And at least the way they describe it here, right. that a patient who's on life support who does not meet brain death and for whom a decision independent of organ mm -hmm. donation was made to discontinue, discontinue life support is taken to an operating room, the patient's removed from life support, and the doctors wait for the patient's heart to stop. If the patient's heart stops, doctors yeah. wait a brief period, no more than two to five minutes, and then begin invasive surgery. Um, and again, the idea yeah. that they're saying here, just because people are brain dead, uh, doesn't mean they're actually dead. They could be still wounded people. So uh, the concern you have is yeah. you, a lot of good people want to help other people and say, well, I have to 
donate my organs. I think it's a good thing. I want to help other people. But then you're also in a situation you're wondering whether Uncle George, uh, you know, is being sized up for what's available. Yeah, I think you can actually put now conditions on a donor mm -hmm. um, a card, you know, an organ donor card, where you can actually say, I don't want uh, my organs removed until X, Y, and Z have occurred. So in other words, you can actually put that down, um, and that's part of the, uh, of the uh, trust uh, arrangement for organ donation. That's good, and <laughs> then we would encourage people to pay attention to that. Uh, when they're being asked about that because again people sometimes wait to the exactly. end or they do it because they're, they they want to be altruistic they want to do the right thing they want to be helpful uh, to people who are left behind but we exactly. got to be careful too okay let's move on to well, some that's of that's very true right very yeah. true right let's move on to the questions yeah. uh, dear father Spitzer my brother met a wonderful woman who is of uh, a Protestant faith he started attending services with her, leaving the Catholic faith. He says he has no problem with this because all religions are pretty much the same, and as long as he's a good Christian, he should be okay. I tried explaining that he will be missing the real presence and the fullness of the truth of the Catholic faith, but he's not convinced. Can I do anything now other than pray? And this is from Elena. Well, Elena, you certainly did give him the right answer. So, um, you know, the first thing is, is yeah, well... Um, the Eucharist is certainly not present, and the grace of the Eucharist, and certainly not the grace of uh, the sacrament of reconciliation with absolution is certainly not present mm -hmm. in that lady's um, uh, Protestant religion. The second thing is, is uh, make no mistake about it, you know, there's all kinds of heterodox doctrines out there, uh, you know, that you should really be cognizant of. You can't just flippantly say, oh, well, all religions are the same. Um, because if you do something like that, you're b bound to, uh, to get touched one day by, by uh, uh, you know, a doctrine you had no idea of. And uh, so he, the first thing I would tell him is, you better study what you're getting into. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing. The second thing to say to him is, I think you're wrong about the Eucharist, confession, the sacraments, because you're not going to get that uh, in another religion besides the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, uh, you know, I would strike for, a, if he looks like he's going to go all the way, strike, you know, for a, a compromise of some sort, right? Uh, try to say, well, look, uh, why don't you just, one week she goes with you, the other week uh, you go with her, you know, whatever kind of a compromise you can make uh, so that you can at least, um, you know, uh, stop the, uh, the slide uh, all the way, uh, you know, away from the sacraments. Because once you, you move away from the sacraments, uh, you tend to, you know, want to justify your own, uh, right. uh, the, the move that you made. But so I would just, I guess the best you could do is strike for some, uh, you know, for some sort of compromise and um, strike a compromise and, and then maybe if that doesn't work, um, you know, just, uh, you know, say, look, I, I need to go, you know, I, I don't have any objection to going with you, but I also want to go to my own services too. Right, exactly. And then uh, try, try that way, and uh, maybe, maybe that'll work. Yeah, and maybe, as you pointed out, very few of the people leave the church over its teachings per se, theologically. It usually has yeah. more to do with some sort of social or kind of thing like oh, yeah. that. 
Uh, so you might have a situation where maybe oh, yeah. this person was, this woman was married before, and so that would be a problem yeah. or something, an, an impediment to be Catholic. And the other part, I think, which we have to look in the mirror about is, why do people think it's the same? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, that, that's the key problem. But I think, honestly, that might be a convenient statement mm -hmm. rather than, uh, you know, him really believing that. I mean, how can you say it's the same if they don't have the Holy Eucharist and they don't have, um, you know, a Sacrament of Reconciliation, et cetera? How, right. how can you say they're the same? They're just simply not the same. And, uh, I mean, that's, I think it's a convenient statement. He wants to... Um, you know, get married to this lady, I guess, mm -hmm. and so um, he's, you know, he's not going to be stopped by his religion. So that's where the um, uh, the rubber hits the road. But I would strike certainly a compromise if you can. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, uh, you know, maybe he goes to both ceremonies, yeah, right, right. but tell him, you know, above all, don't don't jeopardize. Uh, your salvation or you know mm -hmm. the the salvation of future children um, you know by doing this don't don't do it well, well let me um, ask you, you know just ask you a question about that too and in, in understanding without yeah. you know being absolute because we don't know all the facts so is there a difference between somebody let's say who was Catholic who was going to the Catholic Church and then left and went someplace else of their own volition versus a person who never became Catholic who goes to that same church. Yes. Yeah, the first one has culpability and the second one doesn't. Right. Now, we don't know how much he knows about the Catholic Church. We don't know, um, you know, if he really has, a, a, you know, true cognizance of what he's doing by leaving. But, yes, there's culpability in the first case and non-culpability in the other. Right. So, yes, that's why I sort of threw in that little remark mm -hmm. um, that you don't want him to jeopardize his own salvation by doing that culpably, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, to, to leave the church, um, you know, in that sense, but, uh, and, um, you know, abandon the Eucharist and so forth. So yeah. I would say, you know, um, you know, at the end of the day, though, you probably have to pray for him uh, because that's going to be the most effective uh, means. And, uh, you know, what can you say, uh, you know, um, at this juncture, you know, we, we have to, we do have to depend on the love of Christ. Right. We do have to depend that he really doesn't know what he's doing uh, in, in leaving right. and pray for him. And, uh, but like I say, right. strike a compromise if you can. Right. That's, uh, that's the best. And be the best example uh, here, probably of, of at this being point. A, a good Catholic as you can be uh, to him, to your brother. Right. Yeah. See that lived, yeah, out, exactly. lived out in your faith. Uh, next up, another question, dear Father Spitzer. I'm a millennial about to turn 40. How could that possibly be? Uh, already, yeah. life seems like one long errand yeah. at 40 already, huh? <laughs> the world is a mess with the yeah. political divisions, war in Ukraine, etc. I get horrific, horrified thinking of the suffering people endure. I pray five hours a day try to give. I'm not depressed or suicidal. I'm sure there are many people like me out there. What advice do you give to someone tired of life? Anonymous. Well, Anonymous, here's my thought. Uh, first of all, you can't let all the burdens of the world weigh you down, burdens especially that you can't do anything about. I would ca caution two things. Number one, this is by no means the worst time to be alive. 
Boy, look at World War II. Look at World War I. Look at, oh, what's happened in Russia and China. I mean, just the millions of lives lost in these, you know, uh, Pol Pot, you know, Cambodia, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we, we, you know, what's happening to us right now, I know it seems like a struggle, but believe me, it is not even one-tenth what these other people have had to endure and come through. I would recommend, secondly, a book called Man's Search for Meaning. Um, and uh, it's a very, very good book by uh, Dr. Viktor Frankl, um, who um, uh, I used to use this book in my philosophy of class. But I would recommend that you read it because what he discovers in it is that focusing on what we can do Focusing on the love that's there in the world that makes sense out of the world, uh, you know, these kinds of things are what makes our life whole. And so, you know, trying to sort of, you know, manage all these extraneous things like the war in Ukraine or, or whatever, you know, I would say don't let those things get to you at all. Focus on what really matters, not just what you can do, but what you can do for other people for your family. I don't know if you're married or, or, or uh, if you're single or what, but I mean, I would strongly suspect that, you know, there's a ton of things you can do for people uh, in your church mm -hmm. community or joining, you know, some group that uh, maybe teaches CCD. I mean, gosh, I know so many of my friends who just turned on a dime uh, when they started teaching uh, catechism uh, to kids really made a difference in the, and my life too. I mean, I got, when I was in college and this girl asked me to teach ninth grade boys, you know, uh, CCD, et cetera, et cetera. I said, oh gosh, you know, that's not for me. You got the wrong guy. And uh, at the same time though, um, I went ahead and did it. And then I found out, oh man, this is, I'm doing a lot for these kids. Right. Uh, these kids need it. And it just drew me in more and more. But you, you, you're going to see that your life purpose uh, really, you know, starts right. coming about from growing closer to God and um, growing, you know, I would start going to daily right. Mass, truly, I would start going to daily Mass if you can, and uh, you'll see uh, that a kind of a peace will, will emerge. You'll see opportunities to serve, and that will be very, very helpful. And, uh, pay, you know, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. There you go. Right? right? Just don't pay attention to all the Ukraine wars out there. We've got, uh, as Jesus says, don't fear. The, today has problems enough for itself. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, he could have said, you know. Be not afraid. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, be well, not afraid. I, well, I always think with this, too, part, part of it I would probably, they say they're not depressed, suicidal, but my guess would be get off social media if you're on it because social media makes yep. you think, and the news cycle that we live in today between your phone needs to constantly get you worked up so that you'll click on that clickbait, that you'll go and look at this and try and find out because... It's this never-ending story that always has a cliffhanger with some other sort of Damocles hanging over your head. Uh, and, you know, people yeah. need to realize, like you just said, I remember living in New York, you used to yeah. think everything in the world was happening to you because of the nature of New York. But now it's like that where oh, yeah. everywhere for people. I'm sure in one case, probably oh, living yeah. in Hawaii, you probably felt away from a lot of these things in some ways, at least 
in the past when you were growing up there as opposed to these other but people yeah. like you said we're so inundated with it uh, you're overwhelmed and you really have to shut it down yeah yeah that's right and I'd say that's very very good advice you know to cut if you can't cut it out mm -hmm. cut it way back uh, because the, the social media stuff, it really doesn't do anything for you. Mm -hmm. It makes you massively more ego-comparatively concerned. Uh, we know that. We know that as um, the you know people look at Instagram, et cetera, young people, I mean, look mm -hmm. at Instagram, we know that increases their suicide rates and their depression levels, uh, you know, almost proportionately to the amount of time spent uh, in the social media. We also know uh, too that it ruins their self you know a normal self image that uh, they're striving for kinds of perfection and self image that you know are exceedingly unhealthy because you're so body focused mm -hmm. instead of whole person focused etc so all of these things are really problematic um, you know and you know if you can't cut it out oh, by the way there's one other little problem too it, your attention span really begins to decrease markedly uh, this is just some studies that were done uh, by a doctoral student at the University of Chicago who just uh, published them very recently uh, that indicated mm -hmm. that um, you know the more time you spend on social media the more the less your concentration level uh, both in time and quality and as a result mm -hmm. the less your creativity um, you know that you can bring to bear in school or the workplace etc right very good great advice with that we're going to take a break yeah. much more ahead with father spitzer as we continue our program and it's focusing on the holy eucharist so stay with us Appreciate you staying with us for part two of Father Spitzer's Universe. Our topic, the Holy Eucharist from Father's book, Escape from Evil's Darkness. And it's available, of course, through our EWTN Religious Catalog. We want to get back to Father and finish a couple more questions before we get to our topic. Dear Father Spitzer, unfortunately, my wife has dementia and it has reached a stage where she can't go to Mass or even receive communion. Christ said in marriage, two become one flesh. Therefore, are we not both present at Mass when I attend, can I make my presence and my receiving of the Eucharist effective in terms of obtaining grace in equal measure for both of us? How far can I be a vehicle or an agent of salvation for both of us? I did arrange for her to receive the sacrament of the sick, and this is Raymond. Uh, you're an amazing husband, Raymond. That's all I'll say to start it off. Yeah, I'll yeah. say, Raymond. And uh, here's my double thought. Uh, the first thing is, is of course, getting the real Eucharist to your wife, even though she's in a state of dementia. Uh, it, you can just take a little pics, get a special permission <clears throat> from your priest uh, to take a little piece of communion, and you can, uh, in the pics, you can bring it home and just uh, give it to your wife. Uh, she might kind of click into what it is. She might not click into what it is, but that's one thing where you could actually give her uh, the Eucharist without having to take her there where she would be bewildered and, you know, kind of uh, uh, maybe a little bit uh, 
difficult to control. Uh, the second thing is, yes, of course, everything that you are doing for her out of love, everything that you think about her, you know, out of love, everything, you know, that you wish for her out of love that you're bringing to that mass and even outside of mass, just absolutely just pour it all over to offer it up for her and just give it just say pour it all down upon her lord either in this life or the next mm -hmm. what's so interesting is these studies of terminal lucidity that have uh, been done in many very good hospitals um, throughout the united states and what happens is that oh sometimes uh, maybe two to four hours before death, mm -hmm. a person who has significant brain injuries. So that would be, <clears throat> you know, a lesion, <coughs> or, um, you know, maybe even, uh, you know, severe dementia, mm -hmm. as uh, your um, wife may have, uh, your wife has, or, um, you know, Alzheimer's filled with, uh, you know, or even hydrocephalic patients. Mm -hmm. um, all of these people. Um, you can actually see that when you, um, uh, you know, maybe not all of them, but some of them, uh, two to four hours before death, suddenly come alive mm -hmm. without any adequate brain capacity to perform the functions they're performing. They start talking to you as if nothing changed from 20 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. So in other words, oh, you know, uh, I've been listening to you all this time and you start saying you have been listening to me with what brain but it's not the brain it's the soul that is doing the listening and of course it's not just that but um you know i've been talking with god or with the lord all of this time and you know we've got to do my funeral arrangements you know uh, because i'm going to die pretty soon mm -hmm. and i just wanted to you know there's two people i need to say i'm sorry to and you're going who is this the doctors are going who mm -hmm. is this and this uh, you can look at these terminal um, lucidity studies but also look too at the studies of hydrocephalic um, patients who have only five percent of their brain left because you know the uh, the spinal fluid that's going into their um, cranial cavity mm -hmm. is pushing the brain up against um, you know the top of the skull and it's replacing the actual brain tissue mm -hmm. so I mean how can a person with hydrocephalic uh, problems like this how can they be doing thinking and by the way 30% of them can uh, do thinking that is beyond their cranial their their brain capacity and furthermore uh, I think it was three or four percent of them registered IQ at a genius level with only 5% of their brain squished up the top of the skull? Are you kidding me? I mean, something weird, very strange going on here. And the main thing that uh, is going on is they can't be doing that thinking with their brain. So I would always assume um, that, uh, Raymond, that you are um, dealing with a person who might be able to hear you, will certainly understand what's going on, that she's in contact with God, you will say, well, I don't notice anything. She looks like a vegetable. That's only her soul that is going, as it were, into this brain that now is severely uh, traumatized or damaged or um, atrophied in some way. So what you have, to, what you got to do at that juncture is just say, that's your brain. 
That's not her soul. That's not her. There's still something there. And in fact, several of the doctors that have worked with these terminal lucidity patients where they have seen people who basically had IQs of 25 or less that, you know, basically making animal sounds is it. The 25 or less, and they come out of it two, three hours before death, and they are articulating religious songs, talking about what they saw in the you know, in, in in their time when they were kind of in these what we would consider to be almost a comatose mm -hmm. state. You look at that and you just say, there's something there, and these doctors say. If you look at those patients, euthanasia of these kinds of people is out of the question. And I can send you some of those uh, studies right. if you want so. um, from these people I've written uh, on the Terminal City. But the main thing is you're doing everything right, Raymond. And just remember, the Lord will, if she can't hear you and know what's going on uh, with respect uh, to your own uh, to, to what you're trying to do for her. The Lord will tell her. She knows. And, you know, maybe you'll be one of the lucky ones where she'll show the signs of terminal lucidity uh, two, three hours, four hours before her death and tell you thank you and I love you. Because I'm telling you everything you're doing is right. It's, it's Christ-like to the max. Keep doing it. God will let her know she's not in any way you know, reduced to a vegetable. She is her human self, but there's a disconnect through the physical brain. And just keep praying for her as you're doing. Uh, next up. Right, dear, praying for her. Dear Father Switzer, I'm a recent convert to the Catholic faith. I'm divorced from my husband, but recognize the church still considers me married. I'd like to raise my children in the Catholic faith, but my, my ex-husband disagrees. How shall I proceed, Dana? Uh, Dana, are the, if the children are um, uh, in your custody, uh, you can do so. Um, now, he could try and take a legal action against you to try and stop you from doing that. Um, but um, uh, basically, I don't think he will win uh, in that suit. But he could, and he could try and make life miserable for you. But I don't think he would do that, and I don't think he would risk getting on the bad side of his kids um, by uh, trying to delimit you um, in this uh, religious respect. Right. So um, I'm hoping that is the case, but I would definitely say, in this case, this is their salvation. These kids deserve to have the same kind of faith we had when we were growing up, uh, when you were growing up. And so, uh, you know, I, I know you might disagree, but, um, but I'm going to go right. ahead and uh, raise the children in the Catholic Church right. for their salvation. Um, and come what may, uh, you can uh, do what you want to do, right. but I'm going to fight you. And, um, and I don't see any good that could right. come out of this for him. And certainly, what would the good be for the kids? Right. I mean, why would you do this? So, I yeah, mean, it's also, anyway, she, she it kind of stipulates in here about the fact that she's a convert and she's divorced, but she doesn't say she got remarried. So her status, as far as the church is concerned, is, yeah. is obviously fine. It's just fine. Yeah, I mean, it's fine. Yeah. So there's, there's no problem with it. It's yeah. like, oh, she's a pariah and she shouldn't be raising her kids inside the church. That's not true at all. So. So no, she, in fact, uh, 
you know, the fact that she wants to raise her kids in the church, Absolutely. opposite of a pariah, Absolutely. I'd say that's very saintly. Keep yeah. doing it. <laughs> Absolutely. We could use more people like that. Let's move on to our, our yeah, topic we, having to do, yeah. speaking of Mass and the, and the Eucharist and raising your kids in the faith, we've yeah. got uh, Jesus' intention uh, in instituting the Holy Eucharist. <clears throat> we started last week talking about that idea. and. Uh, and you, you make a point here and you talk about it and you talk about the Israelites' understanding of the principle of how blood was understood. Explain that. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, when uh, we talk about blood in the, um, you know, here, we, we're kind of thinking, oh, that's uh, what carries oxygen, you know, to other uh, tissues or carries nutriment to uh, tissues, et cetera. And we have a very kind of physicalist scientific view of blood. But the ancients actually thought of blood as the life force. And somehow life, the principle of life, was contained in the blood. And that was definitely a Semitic uh, view. So um, when you look at, you know, when Jesus says, uh, take, eat, I mean, take, uh, uh, drink, uh, or this is the blood of the covenant mm -hmm. being poured out for you in the uh, Lucan uh, version, mm -hmm. um, right? When he says that, um, he's saying that this is the life force. This is your life, uh, I mean, my life force that's being poured into you. Mm -hmm. So you're going to get that life force within you. And furthermore, it is that life force, uh, right, that, uh, that he's thinking of that's the guarantee of the covenant. So in Luke's gospel right, and Paul's uh, epistles, right, when you see, uh, you know, this uh, this is the covenant, new covenant in my blood, right? Blood is the guarantee of the covenant. And it basically means I am guaranteeing this covenant with my life, with my life force. And so um, when, uh, um, you know, Jesus is giving you an absolute guarantee. Guarantee of what? Uh, he says, this is... Um, my blood. Well, there's two other images of blood that are very important. The first is there's blood sacrifice unto the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus definitely is doing that in the Holy Eucharist, right? Because he says, this is uh, the, uh, the cup of blood in the new covenant being poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, he couldn't get a more a uh, clear explanation than that, that Jesus is taking the place of a sacrificial animal. Mm -hmm. And the reason he's trying to take the place of a sacrificial uh, animal and to spill his blood as that sacrificial animal for us is because he wants to become the new sin offering. It's no longer the blood of an animal that's going to forgive sins. It's now going to be the blood of the Son of God, the blood of the Messiah who has come to be with us. He's the only one that can definitively mm -hmm. forgive sins, take away the darkness of sins, protect you from evil, and set you on the path to salvation because he's the Son of God. It's his life force. It's his, the godly one, that is giving us this blood. That blood of the covenant is what he's guaranteeing 
with, uh, you know, by taking the place of the sacrificial animal. I mean, I could go into the Paschal lamb, but that might be a bit right. much. Uh, there's a third signification of blood, and that is the blood of the Paschal lamb, which, mm -hmm. by the way, what feast did Jesus choose mm -hmm. to come up to celebrate the Holy Eucharist with his apostles? Absolutely correct. The Passover. Mm -hmm. And remember the rite of the Passover for the Jewish people? that they were to put the um, uh, blood on the doorposts of every right. Israelite household so that the angel of death will fly over, right, will pass mm -hmm. over that uh, house. Now, you look at that for just one second, you go, oh, so if Jesus is also not only taking the place of the sacrificial animal, but he's also taking the place of the Paschal lamb, he's right there at the very moment when the Paschal lambs are being sacrificed. There he is, um, you know, uh, celebrating the supper with his apostles. Right at that very moment, he's taking the place of the Paschal lamb, but he's taking it um, in a definitive way where now it's not just that the angel of death will pass over to, uh, you know, protect them from death at the hands of the Egyptians, mm. but to protect them from death um, eternally, from all death, and protect them especially from death that comes through the dark forces of Satan and the evil spirit. He is their shield against them and his spiritual death. And so you've got a threefold kind of death that he's, you know, um, you know responding to. Mm -hmm. the, the earthly death, yes, but also the death after the earthly life. Um, he, you know, you, your eternal life is forever. And, of course, the death that can come, the spiritual death that can come from the devil, all of them he is protecting um, you from. And so you can see that this is something else. This blood that he mentions has all of those meanings. The blood of the um, uh, sin sacrifice, the blood of the Paschal Lamb to protect you from all forms of death, including mm -hmm. the spiritual death of evil spirit. And finally, it is the blood that guarantees the covenant. I will give you eternal life through this sacrament. So the blood is part of all three of those elements in the Eucharistic formula. And that is really his Semitic meaning. And, um, you know, anybody who tries to interpret this through some kind of a Greek or mm -hmm. some kind of a, a Hellenistic, you know, meaning as Boltmann and company tried to do is just so far missing the boat. I mean, Joachim Jeremias just put an end to this Boltmannian nonsense when he wrote his book, you know, Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And, you know, hello, Jesus was a first century Semite raised by a mom who was a first century Semite, let's get facts straight here. He's not uh, some kind of a Hellenist, uh, you know, or some kind of a manufactured Hellenistic image by a post-resurrection church. <laughs> so that kind of answers the, the question you have there, which you pose, you see, how do we know that Jesus intended to give us his real body and blood, his real crucified and risen self, rather than a merely symbolic presence in the bread and wine? And that's kind of what we hear yeah. somewhat these days, or at least people misunderstanding. And you, you point out yeah. that Jesus' action at the Last Supper is prophetic. What do you mean? 
Yes. Yeah, there's um, what, uh, you know, when, as I said, Jesus is uh, Jewish. He's definitely uh, um, taking the place, not just of a prophet, not just of the Messiah, but he is the Messiah of God. He is the definitive son of, uh, of the Father who is taking um, the prophetic role here. But the prophetic role, if you recall, um, you know, is that when the prophet speaks the word, the word goes out of his mouth, but it doesn't go like traveling in space. That's mm -hmm. the way we view it, right? So I'm across the room from you and you hear my voice, you travel in space. What the prophet really means is that the, it's going into the future. Mm -hmm. So basically as the word goes out, out of Jesus's mouth it's going right up to the moment of Calvary right mm -hmm. it's going right up to the moment when Jesus is the blood is dripping from his side when he is dying on the cross and that whole event of his body hanging on the cross and the blood dripping from his side is being brought right at that moment through the prophetic word into the present moment, right? So, so the the prophet's word goes into the future and brings the future into the present. Now, of course, all time is in God. So, you know, if, if God wants to collapse the time between the future event and the present moment, he can. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly the way that Jesus intended it. Jesus is not intending this in some sort of Hellenistic sense where he goes, oh, yes, I'm talking about this future event, which, I, you know, um, which is still completely separated off from us in an, you know, a space time that can never be transcended. Jesus believes that all time is in God and it can collapse or stay the same as God wills it. Mm -hmm. So as he's pronouncing those words, he's literally bringing his crucified body into the bread he's giving to his disciples. At that moment, it's the, the body is being infused into the bread he's giving the disciples and the blood dripping from his sight is being infused into the uh, blood uh, through the collapse of time, through God's collapse of time. Right there, there's no differentiation in time. And so he's giving his real body and his real blood uh, to the disciples. And that's why, you know, you'll notice that Jesus is using a present passive participle, mm -hmm. which is being given for you. Like now, it's being given for you, which is being poured out for you, another present passive participle. So when you see those, the um, you know you can the Greek is translating his intention, right? Mm -hmm. uh, his Hebrew words, you know, there's a Hebrew tense for a continuative into the future that comes into the present. So the idea then is that uh, Jesus is bringing his real body and blood mm -hmm. into the sacrifice. But that's not the only collapse of time. There's a secondary collapse of time that every Jewish person knows about, right? And that's the collapse, like if you celebrate a sacred event like the Passover, as the celebration is taking place, if you, in an Orthodox Jewish sense, you would know that as you are celebrating the sacred event and drawing closer to it, the time between you and the event collapses. Mm. This is called the sacred return, right? The return to the sacred event. Mm. 
the eternal return to the sacred event. You can always do it by evoking or reliving the event. So it's not just like when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, he's not saying, just call this to mind, please. Mm. I mean, he had no such thought. I mean, it just never even occurred to him that this could be viewed in a purely symbolic way. It's nonsense. So the thing that he is really thinking, you know, as, as this good semi is the same thing that the father, you know, in the celebration, he's collapsing the time between the actual event. And so the graces of Israel being liberated from Egypt are there in the celebration of the sacred event. Now, in the case of Jesus, he's telling his priests, he's tell, or his apostles, who effectively are taking the role of the prophetes, mm -hmm. the priests, and so uh, the prophets and the priests. And what there's, he says, do this in remembrance of the, he's saying relive this. Let's not call this to mind. It's relive this so that the time in the few, that you are celebrating, you know, will be collapsed into the present moment when mm -hmm. I gave you the transformed bread and the transformed wine uh, into your, my body and blood so that the time will collapse so that after the collapse, you literally, when the priest says <clears throat> and repeats the words, this is my body, uh, um, which will be given for you. When he says that, the time collapses right there. And, of course, the, re the real body that Jesus is handing to his disciples at the Last Supper is literally it being infused into the Eucharistic species that the priest is holding up, similarly with the wine. The blood, the transformed cup, the, that's now the blood of Jesus being handed to the apostles is being collapsed right into the chalice that's being held up by the um, uh, by the uh, by the priest. Now this is a very well known. It's a double collapse of time. We don't think this way. Mm -hmm. We think of time as kind of an absolute in this culture, right? Or that science has the. And I wrote a whole dissertation, by the way, <laughs> on relativity. Uh, so I, I've got a pretty good idea of what we hold as you know as a view of time here. Uh, you know that's necessary for science to proceed. But the point is, is God has all time in, in his mind, and he has to have all time in his mind. And that's a whole different topic for another day. But the reason he has to have time uh, in his mind is because the earlier and the later of the present moment cannot be held together except by some form of cosmic consciousness or cosmic memory. It's the only way. And to my mind, the only superseding cosmic consciousness or memory that could possibly hold together the earlier and later of the whole universe is the transcendent creators himself. Mm -hmm. So let's face facts. Time's got to be in the mind of God, and God can do whatever he wants with that time in his mind. Now, if you take that as a given, then when Jesus is basically saying, do this in remembrance of me, he's saying, uh, essentially, I want you to relive this sacrifice and relive my words so that the body I just gave, my body that I, on Calvary, that I just gave you in the bread, I want it to be collapsed into um, uh, the, the species, the, uh, the bread you're holding up, and the wine that's been transformed in my blood will collapse into the wine you are holding up so that you can receive my real body and my real blood. And that's the only thing which will make sense out of John 6. The only thing that'll make sense out of, um, right. you know, John chapter 6. Uh, when, of course, you know, all these disciples are coming along going, 
This saying is too hard for us. You right. think they took that symbolically? Mm -hmm. Of course they didn't take that right. symbolically. I mean, for all intents and purposes, uh, he meant it so really, and, and they, they knew he meant when he said that the bread that I shall give is my flesh for the life of the world. He meant it really. And so they just said, oh, we got to, right. uh, you know, this guy's crazy. We got to leave him. Right. And Jesus has to turn to his disciples and say, you're going to leave me too? And they go, no, we've come to believe that you Absolutely. have the words of everlasting life. Well, uh, time has collapsed on us for this week's show. So if you'll give us your uh, I knew you were waiting blessing, to say something uh, like that. Blessing on the door. <coughs> Father, I'm getting very predictable. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, no, no, I figured it had to be a time. Okay. And so uh, bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. And may the Lord of all time and all eternity, the Lord of all love and sacredness, the Lord that can make his presence throughout time felt and ingested right into us as the food that heals and forgives and transforms, animates you as you receive the beauty of the Holy Eucharist, as you receive this sacrament of our salvation in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Spitzer. We shall see you next week. And don't forget, all the Father's books are available through our religious catalog along with some great DVDs. Next week, our show continues talking about the Holy Eucharist. And, of course, EWTN's bookmarked. We've got two books coming up. Special centenary edition of Mother Angelica, the Remarkable Story of a Nun, Her Nerve, and a Network of Miracles. This is an interview with Raymond Arroyo. Also, his second book, just out, Turnabout Tales, The Unexpected Light of Thomas Alva Edison. And again, one and only Raymond Arroyo is our guest. And we've got the massive installation of the Most Reverend Francis Leo as Archbishop of Toronto. That's coming up on Saturday, March 25th at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. I'm Doug Keck. We appreciate you joining us. We shall see you next time in Father Spitzer's universe. Be well.